Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here as always with David Scott. Colgo, great to be back. And our guest this week back on the show is Shane Oliver, Chief Investment Officer and Chief Economist at AMP Capital. I've said it before, one of the most eloquent and insightful commentators on economics in Australia. Uh, Shane, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Let's dive straight in. Um, What is your base case for interest rates this year? Base case is that the Reserve Bank will cut rates again, although I must admit it's one of those views you have that are held somewhat shakily. Um, I guess uh, my view on this is that the Reserve Bank is right to be more optimistic globally, uh, that growth will bounce back, or when the numbers come out, will bounce back in the December quarter, and that we'll head back to around the 3% level. The, the concern I have is that it will take longer for inflation to get back to the Reserve Bank's target, and that, um, combined with some pressure on the banks to continue raising their interest rates, potentially variable loan, traditional variable loan rates for owner-occupiers, um, which is something the Reserve Bank would probably want to offset. And also, I think, a desire ultimately to get the Aussie dollar back down, although at the moment the Reserve Bank doesn't seem to be too concerned on that front. But all those things together, I think, will ultimately see a rate cut. But yes, there's a whole bunch of arguments stacked up the other way as well, so it's a fairly close call. We're going to look at uh, the outlook for housing inflation. Um, We had the statement of monetary policy out today. We're recording on Friday, um, and it shows inflation back in the band. Um, We managed to get a photo of Guns N' Roses uh, into that that particular story. Um, But uh, the the, the RBA is now forecasting uh, inflation to return back into its 2 to 3% uh, inflation rate. Um, over um, over the, the coming year. So, um, so very interesting uh, uh, picture that's emerging. I think it's, um, w- one of the things has been, you know, obviously we a new um, RBA governor, um, Phil Lowe, um, and he is now starting to make his presence felt. Uh, and uh, in Sydney last night, um, on Thursday evening, um, he gave a speech um, where he talked about a range of things. But I want to look at what he said about housing because it's very interesting. Um, and if you can bear with me for a moment, I'm just going to read um, a couple of paragraphs from his speech because um, I think this is worth paying attention to. So here we go. The picture varies widely across the country. Prices for houses in Sydney and Melbourne are rising strongly, but apartment prices in some cities, including Perth and Brisbane, have fallen. The population is growing strongly, but there is a large number of additional dwellings to come onto the overall market this year. Growth in rents is weak, but vacancy rates in most markets are not unusually high. And investor demand looks to have strengthened in the closing months of 2016. So it is a complex picture. One reason for trying to understand this complex picture is that the level of household debt is relatively high. Overall, households are coping reasonably well with this, but there are clearly risks. 
So it is a positive development that over the past couple of years, banks have tightened their lending standards in some areas. This tightening was partly prompted by the supervisory measures put in place by the Prudential Re Regulator APRA, and the Reserve Bank and APRA continue to work closely together monitoring developments. Now, central bankers choose their words very, very carefully. They know the influence that they can have over policy and on markets. So when uh, the governor of the Reserve Bank is saying there are clearly risks, uh, it means something. Uh, David, you had a close look at this uh, today, um, and what was your take on it? Oh, I think that uh, Philip Lowe is uh, far more open with his communication than I think what his predecessor was. It's no offence, uh, Glenn, if you're listening. Um, I think that uh, the days of uh, central bank speak are over when it comes to Philip Lowe. He's much more upfront with, uh, with what he's looking at, what, uh, what concerns he has, what optimism he has. Uh, and in the speech, there's a lot of various things. He talks about the opportunities we have, the risks, as you said. But he outlined two specific things that he was most interested in this year, which is the housing market and also the labour market. And the two are very obviously intertwined, given the, uh, the ability of households to go and service mortgages and the like. Um, so I didn't read too much into it, apart from that it's very similar to, uh, to what he said in previous statements, in the, uh, the Statement of Monetary Policy that was released on Tuesday after their first, uh, first rate meeting of the year. Uh, very optimistic tone, but uh, just giving that uh, clue to the markets that there's probably going to be some greater influence on upcoming housing data and, uh, and unemployment data as well. Um, so what's your base case now for um, how rates will look? I mean, we've heard Shane's take, um, but um, you know, he, uh, Shane sees a cut coming. Um, what about you? Oh, look, I take the RBA governor's optimism as a, a sign that he feels fairly comfortable at the moment. Uh, my base case is that they're on hold this year, but I'll clarify that with saying that uh, if they're going to move in any direction in the next 12 months, I still think it will be lower rather than higher. Hmm. Um, so this uh, more upbeat assessment of the economy uh, it has um, uh, it's very clear, um, uh, I think, shift in the RBA's take on, on things, that things are improving, particularly the global economy. Um, that talking about, you know, how, you know, basically I think the statement said on Tuesday in the rates decision that the global picture has improved. Um, so uh, Shane, how do you see that feeding into the global picture? Um, uh, how do you see that feeding into um, what's happening here in Australia and uh, how, it, how the RBA balances um, its priorities? Mm. I guess if you, um, I mean, it's the global picture that's changed, if anything. Uh, back in November, um, the RBA had a set of forecasts. It's basically got the same set of forecasts except for a bit of fine-tuning in the very short term, um, particularly regarding the September quarter GDP numbers, which were negative, and you can't ignore that in flowing it through. But beyond that sort of, if you look at 2017, 2018, their growth forecasts and inflation forecasts are basically what they were back in November. What seems to have changed, I think, at the Reserve Bank is that global assessment. Um, more confidence regarding growth globally, regarding the US, regarding China, feeding through to commodity prices, and the flow on of all of that to our uh, national income, and hence to, to growth in Australia. So it's, it's not that they've become, I think, a lot more upbeat on the Australian economy per se. They're, they're really mounting an argument as to why we're not going to go into recession despite the September quarter um, fall in the economy, why we're not going to keep falling, um, and why they're not too concerned, I guess, about next year when, or sorry, this year, 
when uh, housing, the housing cycle will gradually start to roll over in terms of construction. Let me ask you about that quickly. Um, uh, I postulated a scenario uh, in the show last week when we had uh, Pete Wardent on, um, and I said, you know, how, how bad would a 10% odd correction be? Um, Dave thinks that would be pretty grim. If it was, I'll cl- no, let's clarify, I said if it happened in a relatively short period of time, I thought it would be uh, very, very detrimental to the economy. Correct. Uh, so, okay, so Shane, what's your take? Um, on the same question. On, on, on yeah. Um, if there was to be, um, do you think a correction is on the cards, first of all? Well, I do. But then if you'd asked me a year or two ago, I probably would have said the same thing. <laughs> um, and yet it keeps getting pushed out. I remember back in 2015, mid-2015, there was quite a lot of uh, people talking about falls over the next 12 months. Um, market economists and others saying falls over the next 12 months. I wasn't quite in that camp. but um, So I think after, it's inevitable. After you've had a what, 60% plus rise in home prices in Sydney, uh, 45-odd percent in Melbourne over the space of four years, um, that you'll get some correction at some point. And if you look at the cycle over the last decade in Sydney, you did see 5 to 10% falls in 2004-05, that period around 2008, early 2009, that's the immediate aftermath of the GFC, and around 2012. And they were all associated, this is the, the rub, though, <laughs> they were all associated with prior rises in interest rates or some rise in interest rates. And that's the thing we haven't seen this time around, which probably explains why this, this, this logic that suggests you'd have a, sh- a correction keeps getting pushed further out because we haven't seen those, those interest rate hikes yet. But somewhere out there, I think we will see a correction. In terms of the general market, um, I think it's probably a 2018, maybe 2019 story when the Reserve Bank starts to raise interest rates, assuming they do. Um, but if you're uh, buying or already have an apartment and you can see lots of cranes nearby, um, I, I reckon your risks are much greater. Um, you could be looking at 15 to 20% as you end up with this sort of indigestion problem, what the Reserve Bank calls localised uh, problem, where a lot of supply comes on all at once and uh, you know, prices go down for a short period relatively sharply. But what's the risk of a 10% fall and the danger on the economy? I'd, I'd say the risk of a 10% fall is high, but as David said, it's a question of how quickly it occurs. If it slowly unfolds over time, no major problem. Um, and if the economy's in reasonable shape as we go through that, then we'd probably, like we were in the mid to the uh, middle of last decade in Sydney, um, and also in 2012 wasn't too bad, then that, that should be okay. But if, if it occurs quickly, then that would come as a shock for a lot of people. Because as they say, nobody wants to catch a falling knife, right? It's a very illiquid market. It, it would be sort of, you know, it, it, it would be a big problem if that occurs when we're going through the period where mining investment is still falling. So you've still got this drag on the economy from falling mining investment. Um, and then suddenly if you have house prices coming down, negative wealth effect, bad for consumer spending. Um, so that, that would be a very bad combination. But if it occurs, say, in 2018, 2019, by which time mining investment is probably bottomed out, so the drag from that part of the, part of the economy is bottomed out, then it wouldn't necessarily be so bad because... Um, you know, you're just replacing one set of one area, one area turns down another time, another one's bottoming out or turning up. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's one of those uh, amazing uh, elements of the Australian economy. I think that you've got desynchronised uh, cycles. Yeah. that's very important. If I think back to when I started my career, 
and then before that in the 70s, everything moved up and down together. If, if uh, mining was booming, then housing in Sydney was booming and so on and so forth. And so when they all went down, they all went down together. And that gave us the recession we had to have in 1990 and, and recession in the early 80s and mid-70s and so on. Whereas ever since then, it seems we've moved into this desynchronised cycle where the states move in different cycles to each other and bits of the economy move in different cycles. You know, you can be... At, and at a political level, people complain about, well, we've got this patchwork economy and, you know, it's, isn't it terrible? That, well, you know, yeah, as an economist, it's a good thing. It, it does lead to confusion. You, know, you do a presentation, I'm saying on average things are okay, and someone says, well, in Mackay, it's not so good, it's terrible. Go up there, don't you, don't you look around the country? Well, that's just the nature of this uh, two-speed patchwork economy that we've been, been stuck in. But Mackay's going to be our new growth engine, according to, uh, to the Governor Labor. A lot of the uh, 3% growth uh, midpoint that, he's, that the bank's projecting out there, are their Ford estimates there, is based around uh, greater LNG exports. So... You know, they're going to be making a big contribution, but um, where that leaves the domestic economy, if uh, that's humming away and, and creating the 3%, which is slightly above uh, a trend level at the moment, doesn't say much about what the domestic economy is going to be doing over that period. Uh, um, which leads me nicely into the inflation question. Um, so um, prices for things, right? Um, big part of the RBA's challenge uh, and big part of... The challenge for businesses is low levels of inflation, um, a kind of softish demand, um, and you know, particular. I mean, there's so many factors feeding into this, right? So, um, when you look at the the crude oil price, um, you know, bottomed out about 38 US dollars a barrel. Um, now it's back up. It was back up into the high 50s, but it's been tanking again this week. I think 53 bucks. Uh, it was the last time I looked. Um, so you're kind of looking for these places where where is the inflationary pressure going to come from? Um, the classic would be that you get a tightening labour market with a lot of job creation, but we don't seem to be getting that. And it doesn't seem to be... Um, I, saw, I saw the Bloomberg survey for um, the employment numbers for next week, and there's, I think, at the high end, there's 28,000. The low end, there's... Uh, um, 28,000 jobs added at the low end. Um, I think Morgan's Financial, um, and he'll kill me for saying this, but he's um, uh, minus 11,000. Um, but that's kind of, if it falls somewhere in the middle of that, I mean, it's still not spectacular. I mean, you know, obviously it being the ABS jobs data, we could have 65,000 um, and, um, and the, dollar, the dollar will move up 0.2%. Come on, Carl, <laughs> refer to the trend as the ABS tells us all to. Yeah, sorry. Uh, let's go back to the trend. Plus 3,000 jobs it'll be. Um, so, um, but the, I'm just wondering, if in terms of the, the, the inflation rate getting back to the RBA's target range, 2 to 3%, Shane, where do you see that pressure coming from? To get us up there? Well, that's the, the big question here. I mean, the Reserve Bank, I guess, in their statement is sort of saying that the signs that it's bottoming out, that, that inflation's bottoming out. Problem is with that is that the competitive environment in the economy remains as intense as ever. Um, as new supply comes onto the property market, particularly apartments, that's going to put downwards pressure on rents. Um, you've got uh, a stronger Aussie dollar. What are we up 10% over the last uh, 12 months or so? Um, that's going to be feeding through with falling import prices. 
Um, we've still got uh, a labour underutilisation rate, which is unemployment, 5.8%, plus underemployed gives you 14.5% or thereabouts. So that's very, very high. This is not the US where that a comparable number is down in the nines. Um, so we've still got a, a lot of excess capacity in the labour market. So it's hard to see why wages growth will suddenly pick up driving cost pressures. So all of those things... I mean, one thing you can point to is the one we hear in the news all the time. Health, health insurance premiums are going up, what, 5% on average or something like that. Um, but that happens every year. This is the lowest increase in several years, in fact. So maybe that's uh, an added source of disinflation. If it's going to be a lower rate than normal, then what other things are going to fill the gap if, if the first list I went through is still, still fairly weak? So I think uh, times like this are the times when I um, think it would be great to do this as a video podcast because... Um, there's a lot of uh, smiles and nodding around the table as you talk about yeah, that. They're doing a monetary policy purely for, uh, for insurance premiums. <laughs> be, interest rates will be on the way up now already. I was looking down the list. Someone on Twitter had a, a list. It all flashed up with all these companies in terms of the increase that they will put through. And mine was, I think, a little bit below the average. So I was feeling a little bit happier there. But anyway, um, the point about all that is, is that it's still hard to see inflation taking off in Australia in the very short term. Now, fair enough, the petrol price went up as the oil price went up. But then again, this week, we're back to paying $1.15. So it hasn't gone up that much, has it? It's probably where it, below where it was yeah. on average through last quarter. Um, and for it to be feeding into something significant, you'd need to have it sustained at $1.60 or something. That's right, to have a big impact, you know, where people say, but if it's just bouncing between $1.10 and $1.30, which is where it's been for a while, it's, it's like ho-hum. It's when it breaks out of it on the upside of the downside. The worry with all of this, of course, the Reserve Bank hasn't made a lot of reference to it, is that the longer it stays down below target, the more people expect it to stay below target, uh, the, the, the greater the likelihood that companies will say, we're not going to budget for a, a 3% wage rise this year, we'll budget for a 2% wage rise. Then it gets more entrenched and you end up with that Japanese situation um, with entrenched low inflation. And then if you get a recession, not that I'm forecasting one, but at some point you then get knocked into deflation. So Trying to make sure that I avoid the sharp intake of breath. Um, as you go through that. I think one of the interesting things too is um, just in terms of uh, household consumer spending um, and uh, inflationary pressures, when you look around, there has been talk for a long time about a price war in the supermarkets. Um, I see a number of analysts now, um, particularly Deutsche Bank, uh, there's a, an analyst there called Michael Simitas, who I think is... Uh, um, very good on on on, um, on the, the overall consumer picture, and uh, they say that well, there's a, they aren't alone in saying that the price war is over. The Aldi effect um, has been absorbed into the market, um, and that the likes of Woolworths and Coles um, are able to start holding prices at least, if not shoving them down. Um, so, uh, and particularly on, on the fresh food side, um, you know, they're able to um, m maybe just push prices up there a little bit. And um, all of that, uh, all of those goods being a significant um, a factor in the inflation basket, um, I think presents an interesting picture. Uh, I will say that there's definitely potential for further disruption in that sector. We've got Amazon coming this year. We don't know when, but they are definitely coming. Amazon Fresh is being readied. Lidl. Lidl as well. Um, and will Costco 
um, you know, come in and uh, set up a little bit more. Um, they're, they're in a couple of places, very, very small market share. Um, but I think that's going to be uh, definitely an interesting uh, space to watch. Um, not just in terms of, you know, interesting company battles and an interesting sector uh, for business, but also because of the consumer uh, inflation picture. Um, one thing I do want to ask, um, Trump policies, um, we'll talk about the Trump trade uh, in a moment because we do have some time set aside to talk about the Trump reflation trade and the outlook for stocks in the year, that year ahead. Um, but quickly, um, a lot of talk about how the Trump policies for the US are very inflationary, um, particularly large half a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure investment. Um, so is there any way that that stuff, that inflation gets uh, imported to, to Australia? Oh, it's possible that if you have a lot of demand for um, construction materials, the building material prices go up worldwide and that flows through to Australia with higher, higher construction costs and so on. So there, there could be an impact there, but um, I, I guess you've got to get the, uh, the infrastructure spending happening in the first place. And at the moment, we're still waiting for, for quite how that will work and when that will kick in. So. To me, it's sort of like one of those things you'd worry about for 2018 um, as opposed to a 2017 story. So there might be a bit of an inflationary pulse? Well, it could be. I mean, if you've got China uh, doing great guns at the same time and Europe stronger, than, I mean, Europe's not going to shoot the lights out, but if last year it was, I forget the number, 1.8 or something, and it jumps up to 2.5, uh, the US uh, doesn't grow at 2.5, but it grows at 3 or 3.5 on the back of Trump stimulus, um, global growth isn't 3.2, which is what I'm assuming, but say 4, uh, then you could have a situation where global inflationary pressures pick up a lot faster. But we've got a fair way to go before we get to that. And I think there's still a fair amount of spare capacity out there in terms of labour markets, not necessarily in the US, but certainly elsewhere. I mean, the, the one thing that always gives you a little bit of pause in the US is that month after month we look at the, uh, the jobs figures looking for the wages pick up and we don't see it. Um, lots of anecdotes and all that sort of stuff, but we're still waiting for that wages pickup. Maybe the Trump stimulus will, will, will tip it over the edge and we'll start to see that. But it's fascinating. The unemployment rate is down around 4%. They're chucking on a couple of hundred thousand jobs, between 150, 200,000 jobs uh, a month. Yeah. Uh, and wages growth is actually went backwards in the last jobs data. I think. It, it dropped down back, slightly. By, by 0.1. Yeah. Uh, from 2.4 to 2.3, I think. Something, something, like something of that order. But um, yeah, it is, it is surprising that, that you're not seeing a pick up. Um, there's lots of anecdotes that wages have gone up and um, there's a, everyone refers to this Atlanta Fed wage tracker and it seems to have picked up. But the official numbers, I mean, don't forget their employment cost index, which similarly has wages stuck around 2.5%, which is where they've been for a while now. Um, it's meant to be the, the, gold, star, the gold standard of... Um, Employment cost indicators, you know, similar calculation to the wage price index we, we use in Australia, and it, it hasn't showed much increase. So at some, some point there, there will be that problem, but I guess you, you've got to, A, get all this stuff through Congress and, and get it happening, debate about that. Um, I think Congress, at the end of the day, will impose some constraints on how much Donald Trump will be able to pass through as a stimulus because 
only a little while ago they were arguing with Obama saying, well, you know, <laughs> you've got to agree to cut spending or something because we're worried about the, the budget deficit blowout. So if they start blowing it out themselves, it's not going to look too good. Um, and then there's this... Uh, and then I, I did actually mention that during the week in a column talking about the confusion of conservatism at the moment. Uh, it seems to be suddenly okay in the conservative, in conservative political uh, circles to massively expand the, uh, the, the balance sheet. Um, and well, they have a track record. You know, Reagan, both Bush administration, saw the budget deficit blow out and public debt blow out, and then, of course, the Democrats come along and have to try and fix it up. Or the more positive view for the Republicans is that they, the, the Democrats then get the benefit of the tougher measures the, uh, the um, Republicans put in place. But the history, it seems as if the Republicans are a lot less focused on the deficits when they're in power um, than when the Democrat is president. Uh, Dave, can I just get your take quickly on this uh, the, the importation of inflation um if there's inflationary pressures worldwide, how does that transfer into the Australian economy uh, and what might it look yeah. like? We're a small trade-exposed economy with uh, our biggest trading partner, China. Uh, if the rest of the world is, uh, is seeing growth pick up and inflationary pressures pick up, then it's only natural that you'll start seeing that in Australia with a lag effect. Um, the one thing I will come back to the, uh, to the RBA forecast, though, is that they're all their growth forecasts, besides the, uh, the near-term reductions they made as a result of last the September quarter's GDP contraction, they've all got the economy growing basically just a little bit above trend or a little bit more, and they're still only seeing underlying inflation returning to within that band by the middle of 2019. To me, that says that there's a lot of risk, downside risk, to that particular forecast for inflation. As Shane was just pointing out, there's uh, been so much job creation in the States, they've got an unemployment rate of 4.7%, 4.8%. You'd expect that would be conditions where you start seeing labour conditions tighten and wages tighten, but it's not. So the thing we need to learn from that is that it may take a lot longer than what we've seen in the past to go and get that wage inflation, which is a huge part of a domestic wage story, uh, inflation story, should I say. So it's certainly going to be uh, very interesting to follow, and um, I think I agree with you, Dave. That it um, takes small disinflationary pulses um, to keep a lid on inflation at the moment. Just takes small bits, but what's re what's required, as you mentioned, uh, Shane. You know, if you get China going well, Europe going well, the U.S. going well, um, if those three things are happening, then that's when you're probably most likely guaranteed. Um, now, I think um, this also leads me nicely into um, the next thing I want to talk about, which is the global um, uh, investment cycle uh, and where we're at at the moment, because we've just come through this period. In some ways, um, people talked about the, the, you know, the, the Trump trade, the reflation rally. Um, it was probably underway a little bit because the global outlook was, outlook was starting to look a little bit better at the, at the end of last year. Um, U.S. stocks kept edging higher. Um, and then the, I suppose, result of the drive, that um, the, the rocket that the, the, uh, the Trump election, Trump win, put under the market uh, in terms of stocks, um, uh, really blew the top off that rally, and we've seen the Dow go through 20,000 uh, over recent weeks. Um, now, I think one of the things that's been really interesting um, has been to ask, you know, because there's been a lot of people talking about four years that uh, stocks have looked uh, quite expensive. 
uh, in the US, but that was for a low inflation environment. Uh, Shane, you had a really interesting note this week uh, that uh, talked about how in terms of the global investment cycle, um, that we're, uh, we probably still have a bit of a way to go and that there's um, a, probably a pretty positive outlook for stocks at a global level uh, in the year ahead. Mm. Well, typical cycle, and I guess it hasn't been so typical lately because the recovery since the GFC has been so long and drawn out, but typical cycle sees growth bottom out, or share market investors after a big fall, the, the wise investors, the smart investors start to see opportunities. So they start to buy in the market, just seeing value there. This is the scepticism sort of phase in the cycle. And then that eventually gives way to a phase where you get more broad-based participation in the share market upswing as economic growth starts to come through. And then final phase is when you get a blow-off, you get euphoria. Everyone's convinced that shares are the place to be. You get in the taxi and the caddy says, yeah, buy shares. <laughs> um, in America, the bellhop used to say, buy shares, and it's time to sell, blah, blah, blah. And that's the point when you, you've gone over the top and then you ultimately get set up for the next downswing. And the question is where we are through that cycle. And I guess we've deba this, this debate has been around to some degree several times over the last few years. Uh, particularly in relation to the US where you say, well, uh, the, the last bear market ended way, way, way back in uh, March 2009. That was nearly eight years ago. So therefore, the bull market is long in the, in the tooth. Likewise, the economic expansion, which started in June 2009, is also long in the tooth. And therefore, you're vulnerable to, to rolling over at some point. Um, old age will kick in and you'll, you'll die sort of thing. But the history of these things is that share market uh, rallies and Growth uh, cycles don't die of old age. They usually die of exhaustion, some sort of excess. If you look back through history, um, bear markets kick in. Even the GFC, when you've got some sort of excess, overinvestment in housing, excessive credit creation, you know, the uh, subprime problems, um, inflation had become an issue by then. Central banks were raising interest rates. The Fed had raised interest rates, I think, 17 times um, going into uh, 2006, 2007. 17 times. Um, yeah, so massive amount of rate hikes. And so monetary conditions have become tight. Everyone was relaxed and comfortable, euphoric, if you like, and then we rolled over and came back down and had the bear market we had. At this stage, I can't see any signs of those things. If you look at housing investment in the US, you look at um, business investment, it's sort of at or around um, average, long-term average in terms of GDP, credit growth beyond corporate credit growth in China and the US, is pretty modest, you know, it's 2% or so in, in Japan, 2% or so in Europe. Um, household lending in the US is not overly strong, and Australia credit growth is running around five and a half, six or something. So it's all relatively modest. It's not, it's not a sign that we're close to the top of the cycle. Inflation has picked up, but from a very low base, it still remains pretty low. And the only major central bank to have raised interest rates just twice is the Fed and policy there is still relatively easy. So all of those things tell me that from a cyclical point of view, we're still in the middle phase of the cycle somewhere, what I call optimism. There's optimism out there, but we're not euphoric yet. We haven't gone over the top with excess. So all of those things tell me that, yeah, we could go further in this recovery cycle globally and also in the, uh, the rally we're seeing in equity markets. So one of the things that you pointed out was that typically the bull phase lasts, lasts three to five years. Yeah. Um, let me throw a curly hypothetical at you. This bull market has been longer than that. Um, we're coming up on eight, eight years, years, right? Um, 
It has been a long time since we've had, in terms of the US, it's been a long time since there's been a US recession. I saw one funny comment from somebody on Twitter during the week, who remembers healthy pullbacks in the, in the market? Um, but let me ask you, do you think the depth of the recession that we had, because it was very, very severe um, from the global financial crisis, uh, is that behind the way that this has dragged out into now almost a decade long? I think it is. It's, um, well, it was d much deeper than normal. It was the biggest downturn um, globally since the 1930s. So you created a massive amount of spare capacity. Therefore, you can grow for longer before you run out of spare capacity. And it also had an impact on confidence that because the the, the, the slump, the GFC, not in Australia, but globally, it was so bad, it meant that people didn't want to borrow, companies didn't want to invest. And so that's delayed the recovery in virtually everything. We went through this deleveraging cycle. And to some degree, it comes back to um, uh, work by Reinhardt and Rogoff, um, showing that when you have a major financial crisis, you can spend 10 years with GDP growth averaging 1% below average. Um, because of the, uh, the deleveraging effect that goes on in the aftermath of that financial crisis and also the negative effect on confidence. Now you could argue, well, some of those things are starting to wear off, but I think that's, that explains, that those sort of things explain why it's taken just so long um, for this recovery to get underway. And for much of that period, it didn't seem like much of a recovery, did it? Um, the, the other thing is, you can question, as I did in my note, you know, I, on a standard definition, of a 20% fall in the market being the start of a bear market, um, America hasn't had one since the GFC, 20% um, or more. Um, but they did have one, they did have a 19% fall in 2011. <laughs> this was the Eurozone crisis and then the um, American, was it the um, uh, S&P downgraded America's credit rating. So they did have a 90% fall. So it got close. You could say, oh, okay, it was interrupted then. You could also say, if you want to push things further, oh, well, they had a 14% fall um, from the high in 2015 to the low in February last year. The rest of the world, most of the rest of the world had a greater than 20% fall. Um, so maybe China, yeah. 50%, Australia was 20%, Europe was about 26 or something. So... Um, uh, you've got a couple of points in that. One is maybe the bull market in US shares is not as long as the eight years. It was actually broken up a bit. It's just that it was broken up in a relatively mild fashion. Maybe they were healthy pullbacks, to use that, that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, the comment. Um, and then when you look around the rest of the world, well, they've had plenty of uh, bear markets. We in Australia had one in 2011, 20% fall in the market back then, and another 20% fall, I think greater than 20% fall back in 2011, and another 20% fall uh, from the high in April of 2015 to the low in February last year. So the rest of the world, it, it, you, know, is, you could say this cycle for the rest of the world is relatively new. Dave, uh, how do you see this, the, this um, when you look at, it, at what the Dow is doing um, every day, you know, what's your take on it now? I mean, it's just kind of been flapping around for the last couple of weeks or so. I think towards the end of this week, I mean, at the start of this week, it looked like there was a little bit of a, maybe a bit of a pullback coming, but no surprise. At the end of this week, it's Friday. Everybody's feeling good. Um, you know, the ASX is uh, rallying today. Um, and it uh, looks like that might uh, continue on into the weekend in the US. But what, what's your take when you, when you look at this behavior in, uh, in, in the global, big global indices? 
Oh, there's a lot of capital that's still floating around the world, uh, courtesy of uh, central banks' actions in the past. They've increased their uh, monetary base uh, greatly over that period of time. So you've got a lot of money that's swashing around. And um, we've seen some money recently going put, get pulled out of uh, bonds into stocks. That's obviously supporting a lot of people are listening to what Donald Trump is saying as well and uh, getting very excited about his fiscal plans, as we've seen today with his court ruling about uh, temporary uh, border stops. Uh, you know, always get what you, uh, what you want. But uh, just the, that whole mentality is still there. There's a lot of capital around. Where, the, where is the better alternative? Would you go and buy bonds at the moment? Would you go and buy property? And a lot of people are saying, well, stocks look the least bad option, if that's, uh, that's the way to go and put it. And they're benefiting. You know, Dow last night, record high. S&P 500, record high. NASDAQ, record high. Bang, bang, bang. And that was uh, primarily fueled by Trump's, was his spectacular uh, tax plan? What, what was the terminology he used? Phenomenal. Phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal tax plan. So uh, that was the, uh, the latest catalyst. Or, or uh, I like the other one, make life easy. I'm going to make life easy for you. He was talking to airline executives. <laughs> so. so I've really got to work on my Donald Trump impression. You know, phenomenal ta- uh, tax Huge. Yeah, phenomenal. Huge. Huge is another yeah, good one. Got to practice the hand movement. Remember the hand movement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think, just to jump in there, it, it sort of, like I think we all got to the end of last year and, so, and thought we've had this massive rally since the election, so therefore we should have a pullback in shares globally, in uh, the US dollar and in bond yields, which, which had gone up quite a bit. And to some degree we've had that, but in shares, at least in US shares, it just turned out to be a consolidation. And I kind of wonder that whenever, uh, there's a lot of noise coming out of the US and you can get all excited about... Um, you know, whether a terrorist attack was reported or not, um, the Piccolo Link Cafe uh, not being reported, which I think was pure nonsense. I was in Memphis at the time on an Elvis pil- pilgrimage, believe it or not. And uh, guess what? I do it believe it. Blanket coverage it wasn't Elvis. It yeah. was uh, the Link Cafe um, all, all the way on the other side of the world. So massive coverage there and debate about uh, his um, uh, travel bans uh, being overturned. But at the end of the day, a lot of that stuff's just noise. And if investors hear stories that he's going to make life good for airlines, if he's going to have a phenomenal tax plan and yeah, bits of that are already sort of leaking out, corporate tax rate 20% or something like that. It might um, be time to buy. Yeah, Dodd-Frank being wound back in some fashion. That, that's what investors are saying. Well, I hear, we hear all the noise. It's all very interesting. We get a good laugh or we're shocked or whatever. Um, some people like it, some people don't. But at the end of the day, investors don't have a moral compass. Share market, rather, doesn't have a moral compass. Investors should, but the share market overall doesn't have a moral compass. And it's just concerned about whether you're going to get better profits and better economic growth. And so far, they like what they're hearing. Yeah, and let's, let's be honest, a lot of the data we've seen over the past quarter has all pointed towards strengthening global conditions. We've seen that all the PMIs that have come out and other data sources we've seen have all shown strengthening. So that's, that's easily understanding. That's what stocks love. They want to go and see higher growth, higher inflation to a certain point. Um, and that's what's uh, also helping to go and feed it. The one thing that I'm slightly concerned about in the, um, in the year ahead or 18 months ahead is there's a lot of junk bonds that are uh, due for rollover. We're talking over a trillion dollars in, bunk, in junk bonds. Uh, if high interest rates do start to eventuate, that'll see the spread to those, no doubt, probably push out to a certain degree as well. Um, and then where that ends up in terms of being able to go and roll over that debt is a big if, a big question mark, which to me is one of those sort of things on the horizon, not a black swan by any stretch talking about it, but a grey swan type of event. I really think that the bond market um, is undercovered. 
Uh, we've been trying to do a little bit more on it um, on Business Insider recently um, in terms of Japanese government bonds, Australian government bonds, um, what's happening with US Treasuries. Um, yields are kind of moving around in a direction where, like, because basically if the cost of borrowing go, go up, um, the, um, there's that, at some point that is going to end up, uh, that cost is going to be passed on to the consumer at some point. Prices will go up, talking about, um, you know, a very uh, interesting picture there. Um, also very important for um, the government uh, deficit profile for Australia. I mean, the difference between a 3% borrowing money um, at 3% uh, or borrowing it at 2.25, uh, you're talking uh, billions of dollars um, over, over the forward estimates. So um, I think uh, it's a super, super interesting area and definitely something to watch um, in the coming uh, in the coming year or two. Um, so I think you've just nominated yourself to uh, have a look at the junk bond market. Uh, <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, look, we're going to wrap it up. I just want to point out quickly um, that one, it is an absolute stinker of a weekend in in the eastern states. Uh, it is. We're recording on Friday afternoon and I was just outside at around 2pm and it was really hot. Um, tonight, Guns N' Roses are playing in uh, ANZ Stadium. It's going to be a hot night. Uh, and they're there again tomorrow night. I'm going tomorrow night. Uh, I cannot wait. I saw them in 1992. Uh, I have been a lifelong fan. Um, and uh, I saw Slash a couple of years ago um, at the Horton Pavilion. Um, but I think well, you mentioned Elvis earlier, Shane. Um, so I think you gave the game away here. Um, <laughs> um, is, is that your type of music? Are you a, an Elvis? Well, I'd, I'd probably say I'm into pop. Anyone who comes up with a good melody that gets stuck in my head, I'm into, whether it's uh, Elvis. Uh, I liked Elvis's style. You know, the, uh, I've even got flares on today. Um, <laughs> you know, the jumpsuits. I, no, forget the young Elvis. This is the, I prefer the Vegas Elvis. That's the, that's the, <laughs> the, the old jumpsuit. Going yeah, the jumpsuit <laughs> and the flashy stuff and the sideburns and what have you. And, um, but I, I think he's just an amazing persona, but I, I like a whole range of anyone who's in that pop category, whether it's Burt Bacharach, whether it's uh, Kylie Minogue, whether it's Taylor Swift, um, Pet Shop Boys, you know, the best um, electro disco pop, amongst, I, I think consistently over many, many years comes from the Pet Shop Boys. I, I will buy every album they put out, and I in fact saw them a couple of years ago in Sydney. Um, lately I've been into Andy Williams, for some perverse reason. I'm jumping all over the place here because I love the way his voice comes out and he does a take on all those pop songs from the 1970s. Um, so I must admit I'm all over the place, but if there's one category I like pop, is it Beatles, uh, Beach Boys. I'm a bit annoyed that I didn't go and see the Beach Boys when they were here this week. I should have gone and done that. So I, I, I will lean over a bit towards heavy metal. I suppose he'd put Guns N' Roses in that category. And I did take my son to see uh, ACDC. Um, was it last year or the year before? And that, that was fantastic. You guys, that was the most amazing list of uh, uh, discography uh, from from uh, Shane Oliver of AMP Capital. David Scott, I think this is what really is. I've known you for quite a while now, and I don't know what music you like. So now's the time. Ah, oh, look, much like Shane, I'm licorice all sorts. I, uh, I don't really have a favourite. Uh, today on, on the train coming in, I was listening to Chili Peppers, then I was listening to Drake. Um, and then 
uh, ACDC, I went to the concerts that were out here, like, absolutely awesome. Like, I'm so disappointed that, uh, that what's happened to the band there. Um, but uh, I'm glad to see that I went to their last uh, last tour out here. Love Gunners, Use Your Illusions, that was the, that was the concert you no doubt you went to in 1992. It was. Um, so lots of stuff like that. Like, I probably leaned a little bit more towards rock, um, but I don't mind pop, just whatever, whatever's going. But I don't really have something where I'm like, oh, it must be grunge or it must be like hard rock. It's... Uh, Whatever sounds good. I think one of, you uh, look, I, I, I will come in on the pop thing. Um, I, I am also a big pop fan. Um, Closet Britney Spears uh, uh, listener. Uh, there's some great songs, actually. And do you know that the producer who wrote, I think, Baby One More Time and Toxic uh, also worked with uh, ABBA? Okay. Yeah. Uh, he's, um, uh, I, I can't remember his name, Swedish producer. Um, but has worked with everybody. I promise you, on the show, in future, I will come back with a list of the people he has worked with, and it is mind-blowing. He's written incredible suite of hits. Okay, we've got to wrap it up, because uh, Tegan Jones, who's uh, very kindly produced the show for us this week, needs to get on a flight. Um, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week has been Shane Oliver uh, from AMP Capital. Shane, thank you so much for coming it's on. It's been show. my pleasure. Great fun. Uh, David, uh, we'll see you next week. You will indeed. And Tegan, safe flight. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. Uh, we're on iTunes where you can subscribe to us and leave us a review. Um, I'm Paul Colgan. I'm the publisher and editor-in-chief here at businessinsider.com.au. show, as I said, is uh, produced by uh, Tegan Jones this week. And we'll see you soon. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.